Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. And today we bring you another great interview with a leading transit CEO, one of the biggest transit CEOs position-wise in the country, Nuria Fernandez. Nuria is chairman of the American Public Transportation Association this year. Such an honor to have her with us on our show today. She's also general manager and CEO of VTA, the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority. She today is going to be discussing, you know, leading her large organization of 2,300 people that bring public transportation and congestion management solutions to the daily commute of the residents in Santa Clara County, California. She also talks about some of the uh, partnering with higher tech and higher education and tech corporations to innovate the way they move people. Santa Clara is really considered... Silicon Valley for the United States, where there's so many of the big tech firms located there. And she's been working a lot with them, as well as building, helping to build an extension of the BART system into Santa Clara County. So there's so much to talk about. We did have this conversation right as the uh, coronavirus pandemic was starting. And so we talk about that some as well, and also about what APTA is doing uh, and representing the transit agencies of America. All that on this episode of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged, America's number one transit podcast. And today we're excited to have America's number one transit general manager because she is head of the American Public Transit Association. And that's our friend Nuria Fernandez. Nuria, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I know that this is a very popular podcast, so it's really an honor to be on it. Well, it's great to have you with us. We're today at the American Public Transportation Association business members meeting in California, your, your state here. And thanks so much for taking in a few minutes to spend some time with us. You have a great, interesting background. Why don't we just start off with that? Tell me something about yourself and how you, where you came from and how you got here and how you ended up being CEO of this amazing transit system. Well, that's a lot of questions <laughs> in one breath. But um, let me just start by saying that before October of 2019, not too many people knew that I was born and raised in Panama. So I, we made a decision, my dad and I, that I will study uh, in the United States. And um, I wanted to go to UCLA. Ah. And he said, no, that's too large of a university. Let's find a smaller place. And I ended up at Bradley University, 4,500 students in the middle of the state of Illinois. Uh, Peoria. Uh, it was terrific. In Peoria, Peoria, Illinois. Peoria, classic. Illinois, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the land of Caterpillar. Right. So at any rate, I went there, studied civil engineering, and uh, after I graduated, went back home to Panama, worked at the Panama Canal. Oh, wow. Uh, for about a year or so, and then had an opportunity to come back to the U.S. So I started really my career here at the department, then Department of Public Works for the city of Chicago. Okay. So that's where I was exposed to the transportation side of the civil engineering world. Sure. Fast forward from there, ended up uh, doing work at the airport. And uh, after I, that, my projects at the airport were completed, I had the opportunity to join the Chicago Transit Authority. And that was my first entry into public transit, other than being a public transit rider okay, uh, growing yeah. up to get get around, because I didn't have a car uh, back home. I didn't have a car in Chicago. Okay. But, so you uh, rode the L everywhere. I, huh? I rode the L everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, if anyone had asked me at the time, would you like to work at CTA? I would say, well, why would I want to be a bus driver or a rail operator? Yeah. 
because that's what people see when they think about careers exactly in public right. transportation. Yes. But given uh, the opportunities I had to run the design and construction division at the CTA, then I moved to Washington, D.C. to work in the Clinton administration at the USDOT. I had an opportunity to then run the design and construction for the Washington Metro. So I had been progressively moving through large public transit agencies, similar roles, but with different level of expectations, uh, different constituencies. It has been a terrific ride for me. I have to say that when I left WMATA to go back to uh, DOT and uh, as the deputy administrator for the Federal Transit Administration, that was the first time that I realized the power of being able to work on policies that affect the lives of so many people that you would never meet. Yes. And that, that we have been entrusted at that level in federal government with such an important responsibility. And that's why we have to be so careful because those policies survive us. Yes, so we I have think to that's where right I first decision. came in contact with you when you were deputy administrator. Yes, yeah. because of course, as deputy yeah. administrator, you have that power yeah. to review that long list of full funding grant agreements. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> requests wow. so and make decisions. How long were you there? I was at the as deputy administrator and then acting administrator from 97 to 2001. Right. Tell us a little about that, because I've had one or two other folks on that were FTA administrators, but I'm, people are always interested in, you're really in charge of the whole country, the funding and the regulation. Tell us some about well, let me Let me not take any credit away from my then boss, okay. <laughs> Gordon Linton, yeah, who was Gordon's the, administ- awesome. yeah, who yeah, was the administrator. But as deputy administrator, I had the responsibility for the 10 regional offices mm-hmm. and the work that they did in working with all of the grantees that uh, looked to the federal government for not only technical support, but for funding. So that in itself was just awesome. Everyone was doing something different, but they were all vying for the scarce resources of what we call the capital investment grants today. Those regional administrators are so important. They are so important. Yeah. And they're so smart and mm-hmm. they're so dedicated. They're career employees who have made a decision that that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make a difference in their communities. And for the most part, I can't think of a single one that stayed for a very short yeah, they term. Stay yeah. They stay for a very yeah. long time. But you were acting administrator for a while too, right? You I was acting, deputy? yes. Um, yeah. The administrator, then uh, Gordon Linton, decided to leave the administration and pursue the private sector. So I stepped in as the acting administrator and I turned off the lights when we left in 2001. So how long were you in that role? I, I think it was over two years. Oh, I thought so. Yes. It was quite a while. Yes. Yeah. Then what did yes. you do after that? So after that, I went to work for Ertec, which was a Tyco company, um, okay. Tyco Engineered Products. So that was my first time in the private sector yeah. as a consultant. And it's interesting because when, you, when you're in the public sector and the consultants are come knocking on your door, you don't realize the level of effort that you have to put in building those relationships. Once you cross that threshold and you're now the one knocking on the door asking to share not only the experiences but the services that you provide is like it's exhausting it's a lot of work <laughs> i take my hat off to every single business developer yeah. development person that's out there i did have that opportunity and uh, and it was so critical because it also exposed me to a lot of other major projects not only in the united states but around the world nice so I was able to travel, work on projects um, overseas. Mm-hmm. And then from EarthTech, I went back um, into the public sector, working with the city of Chicago, Department of Aviation. And uh, then my next transition from there was to another consulting firm, uh, mm-hmm. CH2M Hill. 
Oh, sure, yeah. And uh, working I'm on major... a lot of the guys. Yeah. Yes, yes, good people. They're Jacobs now. Now they just got absorbed, yeah, yes. by the big boys. <laughs> yes, yeah. but you I know... I thought they were the big boy, and then yeah, they're the bigger boys. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like everything else, if you look at this industry over the past 20, 30 years, there's been so many changes. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that's consistent is the quality of the people, their dedication. So even though the name of the company changes, you know that the folks are still there. Mm-hmm that are putting their name, their license, and their reputation behind the work product. Yes, and they're so critical. I think a lot of folks in the, just the general public don't understand the role of these big consulting firms like Jacobs, AECOM, those guys. I know when I was at MTA, and I'm sure at VTA where you're at, they were a big part of all the capital projects we did, and we would not have been able to have done them without those uh, professional men and women who, who came and were almost embedded in our agency. Oh, the many books they could write and the many stories yeah. they could tell. <laughs> so then what? So then after that, um, I received a call from Governor Cuomo's office asking um, me to consider being the chief operating officer for MTA New York. Now, you get that call, you don't have a choice but to say yes. Yeah. I mean, New York uh, and its transportation system is one of the most recognized in the entire, not only country, right. but the world. It's the biggest in America. It's the yeah. big dog in yeah. America. and. Um, so an opportunity to work at MTA uh, is something you don't pass out. Right. But it is a very big organization, yes. and um, you can get done there what you can. And so you have to focus. Uh, you can't to try to boil the ocean <laughs> or drain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a few areas of my responsibility that I felt I could make a significant difference, and that was one of them was uh, completing the business service center, and that is integrating a lot of the support services and administrative services that were being performed independently by each of the um, the the agencies within MTA. Uh, so that was completed while I was there. And then the next one was uh, the asset management, mm. getting all of the, the different agencies uh, from the, the uh, MTA bridges and tunnels all the way to Long Island Railroad to wow. start looking at their state of good repair and come up with a system where they could not only assess, and this was before TAMS, okay. before the Federal Transit Administration required us to right. do that, right. but assess uh, uh, create a compendium of all of their assets, uh, the condition of those assets, and then looking at how to replace them and modernize them. How long were you there? I was at MTA for two years because another call came in. Yeah. Who was the CEO while you were there? <laughs> uh, well, I had, there were two uh, CEOs. I started out with Jay, uh, with um, Joe Loda. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, and then after Joe left, it was Tom Pendergrass. Big uh, names. Yes, yeah. big names in the... Especially Tom, because I, yes. had, I had worked with Tom before. Yeah, of course, New York's always in the news with uh, leadership and leadership changes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? That is only as of late. I think if you go back 15 years ago, there was, there was a lot of stability. Yeah. But like everything else, the, the individuals that were there have all yeah. retired and yeah. moved on. So as you get new people, new leadership, new governance right. at the state level, those things change. Yeah. So then what did you do after that? So then um, while I was there, I received a call from uh, one of my colleagues in the industry who was at the time the general manager for the Valley Transportation Authority. And um, he said he was getting ready to retire. And would I think about uh, taking that position and had the executive search firm call me? I went out there. I had been serving on the Mineta Transportation Institute board, which is centered in San Jose. Okay. Uh, so we had 
board meetings out there. I was familiar with not only the city, uh, but with a lot of leaders in the city and, of course, the other board members who lived locally. So it was not a, it was really not a huge leap for me okay. to make that transition. But I like the, the notion of being at the head of the organization in an environment that was smaller, mm-hmm. had the same type of challenges, but at a much smaller scale than New York. So you were on the Mineta board. Tell us some about that institute, because I don't think a lot of people know a whole lot about that. Well, the Mineta Transportation Institute is a university transportation center designated by the U.S. Department of Transportation. And it was founded under ICE-T. Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act. Absolutely. And the Honorable Norm Mineta, who was the chair of the House what is now in a house TNI now, right. Transportation and Infrastructure, and then uh, was Secretary of Commerce and then Secretary of Transportation, uh, was one of the founding members of the Institute. The Institute focuses on research, on transportation research, multiple areas, but they are also very well known for the work that they do in security, so cybersecurity uh, is one of their emphasis areas. Okay. So then you left there and you went to VTA. And how long ago was that? That was in 2013. Okay. So, so seven we're going years to, we're going in yeah. seven years. That's uh, great. At VTA. So uh, you've been CEO for there for seven years. Tell us some about that. Uh, by the way, what a great career. I mean, you've had an amazing <laughs> career, Nuria. It's been I've what a described, blessed life. Yeah, thank you. I've yeah. described it as a magic carpet ride. Yeah. It really is one of those things that you just look around and the world is just so vast and the opportunities are so many. But then you ask others and say, well, she can't hold a job. (laughs) She just keeps cycling through. I just think that um, if you have a passion for something and there are opportunities where you see that you can make a difference, uh, you should just step right in. I just, agree. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Right. So I am at the Body Transportation Authority. Yeah, and, tell us about and that. And people just assume that it's light rail and bus. But in reality, in California, there are a number of designated what they call the congestion management agencies. So we are congestion management agencies. So I'm also responsible for uh, the planning and the funding of our highways, freeways, expressways, and then bicycle and pedestrian. So we're a mini DOT. Yeah. So tell, for those who aren't familiar with California, place kind of geographically on the map in people's minds where you all are at, how big it is, those kind of yeah. things. So Santa Clara County is the heart of Silicon Valley. It is comprised of 15 cities and the county government. And in those cities include names that you're familiar, you may be familiar with. The city of Mountain View, that's the headquarters for Google and Cupertino for Apple and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. San Jose has Adobe, uh, Samsung, and there's a whole host of all of these tech companies are within those 15 cities. And then adjacent to us is uh, San Mateo County that is the home of um, Facebook in Menlo Park. So you're right in the middle of it. We're right smack <laughs> in the middle. So we talk about Silicon Valley mm-hmm. uh, more so than Santa Clara County. Right. Because that's but that where is people, where you're at. That's where I am at. And your that's transit in system the Bay is area. over that whole area. It's the entire 325 square miles of service that we provide. Yeah. And tell us what kind of services you do provide, kind of the scope, number of buses, employees, budget, that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, so VTA is a bus and light rail. I'll talk a little bit about a large 
heavy rail that we're, we're bringing into our county. Okay. So we have our light rail services and our bus services. I have 474 buses. Okay. Those buses are the same mix that uh, most of the, the transit systems have. We have 40-footers and we have the articulated. We have a segment of a bus rapid transit and um, we're able to design a very sophisticated looking what we call the blue bus okay. uh, for a bus rapid transit. Nice. So that's the on the bus side. On the light rail side, we our light rail system, we have 100 uh, light rail cars. Three of them are out of commission. Okay. <laughs> and we provide services. We just did a full redesign and redeployment of our bus and light rail to be able to attract more ridership, and we call it the new transportation service plan. I engaged the services of uh, Jared Walker, who is known in our industry, to come in and help assess what was happening to us, which was we were losing a lot of riders. Bus has been, always been our traditional, very stable mobility asset, and uh, we were seeing a, a decline in bus ridership as well as light rail. So he helped us recalibrate put more emphasis on those corridors where we had high activity centers. And we went from a distribution that was 75% frequency and 25% coverage. And the coverage were those areas of our county where there was not the density, but we had to be provided the coverage because we have a half cent sales tax in perpetuity that is supposed to provide some access throughout the entire area. But we also recognized that that was causing an effect on our finances. And in order for us to stabilize our financial condition, we wanted to put more service, provide more frequency. So going from a 30 minute to 15 and from a 15 to seven minute headways, which will give that assurance to the riders that if they miss a bus, it was okay. They didn't right. have to live by the schedule right. because there'll be another one just down the street in a few That's minutes. That's great. Yeah. And, and when did that go into that effect? That went into effect on December 28th. So it's relatively you, new. Yeah. Are you seeing any results yet or is it too uh, soon? It's a little too soon, but we, we're getting a lot of feedback. Of course, those areas that lost service, we're still hearing from them and we're looking at other, <laughs> we're looking for options. Yeah. Because if the ridership wasn't there to justify the number of boardings that we have as a minimum standard, then there's absolutely opportunities for us to look at other mobility as a service, look at other micro transit sure. and ways that we can still offer uh, that access and mobility to those communities. And uh, then you have paratransit? We have paratransit. It's our responsibility as well. And we manage that paratransit program through a third-party operator, MB Transportation. Oh, sure. I used to work for them. Yes, yeah. there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, that they're providing that paratransit service. Okay. So on a daily basis, about do you know about how many riders you transport in any of those services or all together or anything? Well, um, or yearly or whatever. Uh, well, our, well, our numbers, uh, we were very... Uh, the, the numbers on our bus um, were 145 thousand and um, when I, I first started and of course we've seen some decline okay. there that's a daily number yes yeah. um, but overall on our on our system we have a very high on-time performance oh that's good yeah higher than the average in our industry great but it has declined mm -hmm. um, somewhat we're now at about 86 percent when I started there we were in the 90s when it comes to 
the rail, what we are doing is working very closely with our the communities where the the, the fixed guideway. Because with light rail, you're running alongside automobiles. Right. Our service is affected by the traffic signal and the timing mm-hmm. and cycling of those signals. And the signals always favor the automobiles. So we were working with them to to get us to a signal priority. Oh, good. So we do not have a rail car, I mean a, a train with two or three cars that could be moving 300 people right. sitting while Right. Cars, cars with okay, right <laughs> cars with yeah. one person yeah. in them go through a, a major intersection. So I think that that is the the focus is how do we make things faster for people? I like to talk about how people we all value our time. Right, time is money, and time is what uh, the decisions are based on. I think Thomas Frey said it best. He's a futurist. Uh, He said that the future of transportation will be defined by key drivers, and that is freedom and control. Freedom to move when you want to move and control to move the way you want to move. So if we always keep that at the forefront, we'll be constantly looking for ways that we can improve our transportation network to do just that. That's great. So what are you doing there besides that in your area? Like, where are you headed now as an agency? What kind of new things are you doing? Well, one of the things that I did was I created an innovation hub because I wanted to take full advantage of the fact that we were in the center of innovation Mm -hmm. for the world, uh, that is Silicon Valley, and bring as many of the innovators and the creators both the independents, uh, working with the the universities, Santa Clara University and San Jose State, and others that were researching and developing solutions to transport transportation solutions, and if they were public transit specific, to have them come in and test those solutions uh, through us oh, or good. partner with us on grants to get more funding to con- to research. So that is one of the things that I am most proud of is that innovation hub. And I just need to continue building yeah. it uh, to make it uh, more successful. We are in uh, the process of um, working very closely. Well, we're, we are working with the uh, Veterans Affairs Hospital in Palo Alto on an autonomous vehicle that would serve their campus to move all of the the veterans that are receiving services, regardless of their ability. So it's really been designed for individuals with disabilities. That's good. Anything else big you want to talk about before we shift over to APTA? Yes, um, the the, uh, the next big thing is that our county made a decision back in the late 90s that we were going to tax ourselves to plan, design, and build an extension of the BART system into our county. Wow. So we have completed the first 10 miles and we're we're testing it. And then BART is going to do their testing. And it's our hope that early, sometime in the next few months, we will be able to identify a date when we're going to open up service. You'll have commuter rail into San Francisco. We'll have the heavy rail from the Bay Area, from San Francisco through the East Bay, that is Oakland, into uh, Santa Clara County. That's phase one. Phase two will bring it uh, from North San Jose through downtown San Jose and to the city of Santa Clara. So it'll be a total of 16 miles. Yeah, it's it's huge. It's huge because what it does, it completes, if you're familiar with the Bay Area, you've got San Francisco north of the Bay, Oakland to the east, Mm -hmm. San Jose to the south. Right. We will have BART 
coming on the east side of the bay. Right. And then we will have, uh, we have Caltrain serving the peninsula from San Francisco all the way to San Jose on the west side. So this is this will complete what we have labeled the ring around the bay. Ah, very so nice. You can leave, you can live anywhere, and you can work anywhere because there'll always be this constant access really to yeah. rail and bus. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening in California where you were talking there. I mean, if you had the high speed rail thing that caught the nation's attention, you know, with Governor Newsom maybe adjusting what they were going to be doing, and then you've also got the big move toward. Um, zero emissions. Can you talk either about either of those topics? Well, I think both topics are very, very important. Uh, High-speed rail for a nation of our stature and standing, not to have a high-speed rail is something that we all kind of like. People ask me all the time, why don't we have that? Well, (laughs) yes, we ask ourselves, why can't we get it and why can't we get it here faster? But then when we travel overseas, we talk about how wonderful experience we had on high-speed rail in some of the other continents, which then raises the question, if we're a first nation, we should be we should have been first, but we should certainly not be last, and we, mm-hmm. should, we need to get moving. So the high-speed rail is moving. It's not moving to the pace that we hoped that it would, but then we also re- recognize the realities of funding and availability right. of funding. But it will happen, and I am opt- uh, very optimistic that it will, and I have confidence in the people who are leading that effort. On the zero emissions, that was a mandate by the California Air Resources Board. So we are taking it very seriously, uh, but it was an unfunded mandate. Okay. <laughs> and for those of us who have been in the bus and rail business for a while, mm-hmm. we recognize that as technology evolves, and we're very excited about technology, but it also comes with a price. It comes with a price with the new assets, the new rolling stock, it's more expensive, and then we have to train our workforce to this new rolling stock that has moved from being heavy on the mechanical side to more on the electromechanical. Uh, So that training Mm -hmm. uh, has to be overlaid. And now with the zero emission bus, we have made, our our board has adopted a policy that we are going to move to electric. Okay. And uh, the electric buses on average is a million dollars a bus. Wow. So it's more than what we would have paid for a hybrid bus or a diesel, a clean diesel. Uh, bus. So that needs to be taken into account and built into our 10-year capital program, Yes. given that by 2040, we're supposed to be fully electric. And do you have, you, have you started that? Are you starting yes, to get we, some electric we, buses? Yes, we've yeah. started. Uh, we have a fleet management plan that will get us there. That's great. Wow. So in addition to all that, now you've taken on a new role this year, which I is chairwoman have. of AFTA, chairperson because, of AFTA. Yeah. Because I'm a glutton. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that, what your role is and what your vision is. Because now, in a, in a way, for the next year, you're setting the agenda. Like, to me, Nat Ford was the penultimate you know, chair of APTA. I, I love that guy, and I love what he did for us. He helped prepare our industry for the new mobility. And now we're two years past that, and, and the chair is passed to you. Yes. So where are you taking us? Yes, well, you know what? You mentioned one of my heroes, and that is Nat. I yeah. think he is not only a visionary, but he's someone that is not afraid of taking risk. And what he's doing in Jacksonville is just admirable. To be able to see a structure and not say, well, we need to remove this structure because it's an eyesore, but to say, I am going to repurpose this and bring us into this 21st century. So I I said, you go, Nat, and we're right there behind you. (laughs) So yes, being the chair of APTA is a very important 
position, and I take it very seriously. I mean, there is a 1,500 members that are looking to this association and its governance and then the platform that we have set for ourselves through our strategic plan to achieve those things. We talk about advocacy, which is extremely important in this era of scarce resources. We all need funding so that we can continue providing services. But we also recognize that technology is advancing so quickly. And it's what decisions do we make today that we know we're going to have to pivot on because technology is going to require us to move forward, but we still have to continue providing services. So we have the advocacy piece, we have the workforce development and upskilling and reskilling our workforce, but that not only that, attracting new entrants mm-hmm. into our workforce. 50% of my employees could retire tomorrow. Wow. And I don't think I'm unique in the industry. I think this is something that is systemic and endemic throughout the entire industry. And then we're looking at the technology aspect of it. In our strategic plan, we talk about mobility, innovation, and technology, called the MIT. Right. What does that really mean? And as we look at the future of mobility and its new paradigm, is it just in the asset or are we talking about new assets that require us to work on the federal side with new rules, regulations, and policies to allow us to operate in this new mobility. When you talk about autonomous vehicles, Mm -hmm. we can, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of emphasis on that, a lot of investment that many are making. The big threes are there in Silicon Valley moving into this space because it's a competitive thing for them. And then you have those who are not even in the automobile industry that are building autonomous vehicles. Right. Software companies and developers are building autonomous vehicles. It's very interesting, but it's it's happening, yeah. and we can't be blind to this. No, we can't. So we need to figure out, well, where do we fit? How do we make sure that there, we have a, a place, a voice, and an ability to see more, see further, and get it going? That's what you see your role as doing, kind of pulling all that together and coordinating all the voices in the industry? Absolutely. And we're doing it using multiple platforms. One of them, of course, is using the foundation of our strategic plan. And then we have the principles of our reauthorization uh, strategy for the reauthorization of um, uh, the FAST Act. And then in addition to that, my priorities are the pillars that are built on that strong foundation. That's great. So covering the advocacy, uh, covering the uh, mobility, innovation, and technology, the workforce development. And because we are an organization of 1,500 members, making sure that we take care of our members and we can attract and retain new members. That's good. Let's talk a little bit as we close out about uh, the role of diversity at APTA and in our industry. I call 2019 the year of the woman in transportation because I think seven out of the top 10 CEO jobs that were announced that year went to women, which I thought was an amazing thing. So tell us about the role of making sure that we are inclusive and we're including everyone because as you said, we need skilled individuals in key roles in transportation. So many folks, when they think of public transportation as a career, Think just like you did when you were younger. Why would I want to be a bus driver? Well, a bus driver is actually a pretty cool job, a pretty cool job, but there are, you know, a plethora of other positions. So talk to us just a little bit about that whole concept. First, I want to make sure I say this. I have full admiration for all our bus operators. Yes. Because that is a hard job. Oh. 
It's harder than what we do. I mean, to deal with the public day in and day out is not easy. So that's a very hard job. I take my hat off to them. I have a full respect for them. And I dream for the day when we don't have to sit back and talk about how amazing it is that seven out of 10 jobs went to women. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah, I think that uh, the reality is that there are more women than men on this planet. Mm-hmm. And there should be as many opportunities for women as there are for men. So with this year being the centennial of the right of the women's right to vote, we're all looking at this through a lens of it's taken it's been a hundred years and we still have challenges and obstacles that we need to overcome. So as, as we talk about diversity in our industry, it's a transportation is a male dominated industry. That's how it started out. I don't think it's gonna change overnight. I think that there's gonna be opportunities. I look at opportunities for equality where we can still, men and women working together and each other recognizing that diversity is what makes everything better. It makes an organization better because you get new ideas, different perspectives. People come from all kinds of walks of life that can take a product and make that product so amazing that it could not have happened if just two or three people went in a room and tried to create the same thing. So APTA's role in diversity is one that was not only part of an impulse effort through our diversity and inclusion, but it's one that is recognized by how Every single one of the transit agencies are embracing diversity and creating opportunities for many in their communities to be part of this great industry, an industry that moves people. Well, it's been a joy to have you on our program today. What an amazing career and life you've lived, and you're still at the forefront and living the dream, as they say. (laughs) I'm living the dream. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was quite fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.